episode of PH Pod Season 4. I'm your host, Kara Schmidt. Throughout the season of PH Pod, we will be discussing different public health issues, programs, and policies that the general public might not know about or fully understand within the field of public health. Today, we will be talking about weight stigma, weight discrimination, size discrimination, and fat liberation. Today, we are joined by Reverend Dr. Anastasia Kidd, the Director of Contextual Education and a lecturer at Boston University School of Theology. She is also the author of Fat Church, Claiming a Gospel of Fat Liberation. This book explores the ways white American Christians have historically participated in anti-fat bias, healthism, and body policing, and introduces the concept of fat liberation. I'm going to go ahead and jump right in with my first question. What is fat liberation, and how is it different from the more popular body positivity movement? It's a great question. So fat liberation is a hoped for cultural shift to a day in which fat people will be free from personal shame because of the way society sees their bodies, that they'll have access to dignified and full health care, that they'll be able to physically access all spaces and be free from all forms of structural fat discrimination and oppression. It's part of a wider body liberation goal of ending societal shame for any reason, right? All oppression, all incarceration, all discrimination against anyone's body for any reason. Body liberation would necessitate a whole host of things ending. White supremacy, patriarchy, usury, capitalism, structural class hierarchy, all those systems of violence would absolutely need to end for body liberation to truly be realized. Fat liberation, though, it's specifically geared toward fat bodies. And body positivity is a lot different than that. Body positivity sort of arose around wellness products, but also societal like interest in influencers and corporations who in the mid mid 90s and a little bit before started thinking, ooh, we want people to love their body no matter what, right? No matter their physical characteristics. And that's a that's a positive notion to have. But it its goal was really to widen the idea of what is considered beautiful or socially acceptable beyond just the thin, white, abled and young model type. And that's been great to see larger bodies, fatter bodies in the media, and to increase the products and clothes and and things available for for fat bodies. But while it's helped with fat representation, body positivity has mostly forwarded the cause of like smaller and mid-sized fat people, not the largest fat people, people like me, I call myself super fat using Ash Nichuk's fat taxonomy. And so super fat people and finifat people, people who struggle with not only finding clothes, but issues like finding dignified healthcare, a healthcare provider who will provide them support, even medical materials to fit our bodies, you know, MRIs and these things that we can't even have access to sometimes. So dignified healthcare, employment opportunities without 
you know, discrimination, physical access to society, chair that won't break under my weight. All of these kind of things are very different than body positivity. So I can love my body, but if that body doesn't fit in it and I don't have access to society in the same way, that body positivity really hasn't helped. And so fat politics is very different from body positivity. Body positivity is a great start though for a lot of people, but we really encourage people to think about fat activism and fat liberation as a, as a bigger goal. What I love about your book is even within your book, you say this book is part history book, part biography, part theology and part memoir. And there's a lot of you in this and it has a lot of your own personal experiences in it from your childhood and throughout your whole life course. Can you tell me about your journey to this point? What inspired you to write this book? Has it been a plan since the start of your academic career? Or is this something that you've been wanting to do more recently and you just felt like you had to get it out as soon as possible? <laughs> it's much It's much the second one. I sat down in one month's time and took all the research I had been doing for 10 years just personal research and literally just trying to figure out my own fat body. And what I found was so different than what the world was telling me that I felt duped. And so I went around for probably two to three years of having these conversations with friends and family and, you know, the pandemic gave us some time in our houses. And so with that extra time, I sat down and organized my thoughts and realized that there was a book there. So my impetus for starting this, though, the journey of of even just learning about it was actually not at all what I thought it was going to be. I, I wanted to lose weight for the last time, right? Really scare myself straight. But then when I got into the research, I realized that the sort of quote unquote, sinful nature of fatness, which I had grown up understanding in that way, was actually not at all true. And when I started feeling like there were systems and there were, you know, political pressures in place that denigrated my fat body, and I wasn't in a system that would allow me to actually live fully in my fat body, I I got pretty angry. And instead of turning that anger inward, like most fat people are told to do and you know feel ashamed, I turned it outward. And so started really researching and got into fat activism and ended up writing a book about it. Yeah, that's how it started. Within your book, you say that the word fat is kind of been used as like a buzzword. And notoriously, the word fat has been used as a way to cause harm and as an insult instead of just a neutral body descriptor. And so I was wondering if you could kind of walk me through that language of which words are better to use over other words to to limit the harm that's being caused on people in larger bodies. Yeah, the word fat is really, really loaded, especially in this culture. And so I think it is something that people need to tread lightly upon because I unapologetically call myself fat. Fat doesn't even bother me anymore, but the word can still hold such power in other people's lives that it's really difficult to sort of say unilaterally that everyone should use the word fat. So I see healthcare providers, others who are trying to be more weight neutral, either not talk about it or talk about size, talk about uh, larger bodies, these kind of euphemisms. But the one word that is absolutely 
terrible is obesity. So if someone says I'm obese, I immediately understand that they're probably trying to avoid the word fat. But the word obese is so offensive to the fat activism space as like a slur. I I spell it in my book with a asterisk for the E. But the word obesity means to eat oneself fat. So at the very first part, there's this assumption that someone knows how I got there. And that assumption is a physical, personal responsibility for eating too much. I can tell you for a fact, as someone who has a disordered eating pattern that leads me to eat actually far less than my body has needed because of the diet culture I have been growing up in, the word obesity already stigmatizes me as overeating. And that's the the false and simplified assumption that often people look at with people with fat bodies. So the word obesity in like the mid 1900s by Ansel Keys and others who didn't like fatness aesthetically and imagine it not to be a good way to be American, honestly. And so they started using the word obesity. But before that, it was a denigrated word for fat people. And it it assumed gluttony. Anyone who's done the research knows that's very rarely the simplified answer for why somebody is fat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of my favorite sections in your book is section two, when you kind of go through the history of fat bias and fat stigma, and you connect it to racial bias and racism at the time. And can you tell me more about how these two forms of biases are connected to one another and how they interact with one another? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, this was a mind blowing part of my own research, because I didn't realize this either until you know, you don't know what you don't know until you know it, right? And if anybody's interested in this area, Sabrina Strings, Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Roots of Fat Phobia is the seminal work. And so I really recommend the full look through that. But suffice it to say that when the transatlantic slave trade and the 19th century waves of immigrants were coming to the States, they brought African and Irish and German and Eastern European and Jewish people and like all different types of bodies, different identities into this space. And the rich, elite, white Anglo-Saxon colonizers got super scared. Because these strange new bodies didn't look like theirs, their cultures and their foods were different, their religions were different, and it provided this huge threat on the control of Anglo-Saxon society. So when you look back at like the political cartoons and the newspapers and articles from magazines and even public health and American Medical Association journals, there becomes this real focus on having a certain type of body as opposed to these other bodies. So it wasn't long until fatness became a symbol of what was thought of as race degeneracy is this eugenic kind of notion. And it's a white supremacist notion that if if your body looks like this, then there no one is going to doubt that you have white blood. Mm. And so if you didn't maintain a certain shape, well, we don't know what's in there, right? So that came with fears of disease, that came with fears of animalistic appetites, these horrible things that people were saying in between magazine articles and journals and all these different places at the time, equated the degeneracy of the human race with the mixing of racialized groups. And with that became maintaining an Anglo-Saxon shape. Mm -hmm. And so diet industry was born and we know all the wild diets they suggested, like 
amphetamines and cocaine and ingesting live tapeworms and other parasites and stuff like that. All those things were aimed at keeping especially women thin because we were the ones who bred the next generation. So there was all of this concern for keeping bodies a certain shape. And we're only a few generations out of that, really, you know, great grandmothers, grandmothers, mothers, and then us like you just, you see this diet culture be passed on from generation to generation, along with the white supremacy and the xenophobia that sort of was rooted in it. But you don't realize how deep those roots of the diet industry are related to the fear of other bodies and keeping white body structure and society on top as a person who's going into public health, I'm very cognizant of the harm that the public health field has done and the part it has played in creating a lot of the stigma surrounding fat people because of the public health messaging over the obesity epidemic. And so I was wondering if you could kind of contextualize that a little bit more for me and tell me how has the field of public health and those who work underneath its umbrella contributed to the creation of stigma surrounding fat people, as well as contributed to the current acts of discrimination against fat people. Yeah. Yeah. First, let me say that I have like a ton of respect for the public health field and I am not a part of it. So it's always dangerous to speak as an outsider to an insider space. You know, it's a helping profession. I'm in ministry. I have a lot of friends in social work, public health. All of us are helping professions with a goal of helping communities, right? So I, I have a great deal of respect for the field. That said, you're exactly right. The public health field is a field that has an obsession with ending fatness because of the way fatness has been equated, I think, wrongly with ill health. Mm-hmm. And it's not just an American phenomenon. It's, it's a lot of places, but not everywhere, which speaks to its cultural relevance, right? But what's dangerous is the obsession with ending fat bodies, really the eradication of my body type, is the goal of so much of the medicalized diet industry. And so much of the medicalized diet industry is actually what funds public health research. And so I have some dear friends in public health who understand and don't want to put the word obesity, for example, in their research proposal. But if they don't, they know their research funding isn't going to come through because this grant is being sponsored by the makers of Wagovi. And the pharmaceutical company is, is wanting to have more and more data on just how terrible fatness is. So it's hard that some public health initiatives are aimed not at ending systemic health disparities, but further ostracizing fat people and scapegoating the people in bigger bodies as the problem. Let me give you an example. Public health initiatives that are geared toward warning parents about quote unquote childhood obesity. I mean, I remember being weighed as a child in front of my whole class. I remember the presidential fitness challenge and not being able to do a very good job of running around the gym, right? So all of these things are what we might think of as warning signs, making sure that everybody knows to stay healthy in a young age. But research has showed that stigma around one's weight in childhood lasts a complete lifetime. And it leads to disordered eating habits, to lower self-esteem. It 
causes so many of us to turn toward restrictive diets and weight cycling. And that more and more research is showing that weight cycling itself, the cycle of taking off weight with a restricted diet and then gaining it back after those diets shift our metabolism, that weight cycling can actually lead to insulin resistance, heart problems, all these things that are typically related toward weight. So if a kid is shamed for being bigger because of a public health initiative, and it leads them to weight cycling and to disordered eating, does not make them any metabolically healthier overall, as opposed to ending weight stigma, both in medical, cultural and society at large, is the best thing we can do for public health in this country. And that focus on health above all else is like a little introduction into healthism. So could you walk me through the concept of healthism and why it's so damaging within our society? Yeah, absolutely. Healthism is a bigotry. It's a form of bigotry that is rooted in the idea that healthy bodies are superior to unhealthy bodies. It is rampant in U.S. culture. And unfortunately, thinness, because of medicalized diet culture, beauty industry, all of the rest, is assumed to be a visual cue for health. And so healthism benefits thin bodies over fat bodies that are assumed to not be healthy. So for example, if I'm sitting next to a thin friend and he eats a bag of Cheetos, there's no backlash. It's just a dude eating Cheetos. We don't, we don't think about that. But if I eat a bag of Cheetos or really even if I eat anything as a fat person, people will automatically assume a side eye and that side eye is healthism. And it's also there when I eat a salad or I go to the gym and somebody praises me for what they assume are these positive health indications that actually is a healthist biased that as a fat person, I wouldn't naturally be moving my body or eating nutritious foods. Fat people do that all the time. So to think that it is super admirable is to betray one's own healthism. Healthism is problematic in a lot of ways because while increasing positive health behaviors for fat bodies and all bodies, they don't always lead to weight loss. Mm -hmm. Studies have shown, right, that like you can drink more water and move more and eat a more balanced nutritional span of foods and, and do all these things in a fat body and you feel better and you can move more and you have more elasticity in your joints and all those things that in one way equate to health, right? But then on the other side, don't change my body shape, right? I'm still 350 pounds. I'm still this size. And so my doctor seeing that, they won't ask me the questions about how are you feeling, won't say things about those health behaviors. They're only going to weigh me. And that healthism is immediately going to back into restrictive dieting or worse, or surgeries, that lifelong rerouting of my food sources into my body in order to achieve a body shape, not health. Mm. And so that is the danger of healthism, especially in the hands of the medical industry. How I like to end these sessions is with a last sentence, and that can be whatever you want to talk about. To end our conversation on, I, I invite you to, to tell us now. The thing that I always say that I want people to remember is that fatness is not a sin, nor is it a moral failing of any kind. Mm -hmm. 
Next, we are joined by Massachusetts State Senator Becca Rausch to discuss policy that is being introduced to provide protections against body size discrimination. She's the lead sponsor of the Massachusetts Bill S-1108, an act prohibiting body size discrimination in the state of Massachusetts. What does this bill entail and why do you think it's necessary to pass? This bill is a really important bill and it does exactly what the title says. It would prohibit discrimination based on body size throughout the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. It's a long overdue bill. It's a bill actually that was initially filed by one of my predecessors in the House, State Rep. Byron Rushing. He filed it for many years and unfortunately it never went anywhere. But in my first term, I filed this bill with one of my now colleagues in the House, Representative Tromwin. And in our first term of filing this bill, we were thrilled to get it successfully reported out of committee favorably. And it has been reported out of committee twice now with a favorable report. And we're now in the third term of the two of us as the lead files on these bills, Representative Wynn in the House and me in the Senate. And we're hoping that third time's the charm for not just getting the favorable committee report, but actually seeing this bill enacted into law. So what do you wish to accomplish with this bill? Does it only provide protections for those in the workplace or what other domains of life does this bill cover? Sure. It is certainly applicable to employment and the workplace, but it would be broadly applicable to a wide variety of settings, public accommodations, healthcare, voting, all sorts of places where discrimination is prohibited based on existing anti-discrimination law in Massachusetts. That's what the bill does, is that it inserts height and weight into the existing anti-discrimination law in the state. Do you expect any opposition or any arguments against this bill as it's in the process of being passed? I think we've addressed some previous concern um, about safety, for example, on roller coaster rides, other amusement park rides, and there are some reasonable height and weight limitations. There's a finite size capacity to certain rides and attractions like that. So we've put safety exceptions into the bill. I have not yet heard any opposition to it, and so I'm hoping that it continues that way. Could you briefly walk me through the process of introducing either this bill or any other bill in general, just to kind of give our listeners a little bit of a look behind the scenes? The legislative process is public and public participation is welcomed. In Massachusetts, we have a two-year legislative calendar. So uh, all of the legislators are sworn in on the first Wednesday of January in the odd-numbered year. And the session continues through the even-numbered year. So all 200 seats in the legislature, 160 in the House of Representatives, and 40 in the Senate, all of those seats are up for re-election every two years. So bills get filed usually in January, right after everybody gets sworn in. There's a two and a half week period we call the bill filing period where basically all of the bills get filed. This term, nearly 7,000 bills were filed in those two and a half weeks in early January. And then over the course of the next several weeks and, and extending longer you know, into the term of the session, our colleagues can sign on to those bills as co-sponsors. And uh, that shows additional support for the provisions in the bill and likelihood of being able to garner votes later down the line to vote something into law. Once the bills are all filed, the clerks, both of the Senate and the House, do what my team and I like to call the Hogwarts sorting hat function of the legislature. And all of the bills get sorted out into committees of jurisdiction. This bill, for example, goes to the Committee on the Judiciary. And so that's where the bill uh, sits and awaits for a hearing, at least as of the time of recording this podcast. 
podcast. They will eventually get a hearing. All of the bills that are timely filed in that early January period do get a public hearing. People can come and testify. You can submit written testimony if you can't make it to the hearing. All of the hearings are now hybrid. So participation is even easier. Silver lining of the COVID pandemic. So the hearings happen and then the chairs of the committee in particular, but all the members of the committee consider the legislation and the various testimony that they heard. And then they make a decision about what their recommendation is going to be. As I mentioned earlier, this bill has received a favorable report. That's a yes, we should pass this bill recommendation from the Committee on the Judiciary for the last two terms. Hopefully that will happen again this session. And then the bills go back to what we call chambers of origin. If it's a Senate bill, it goes back to the Senate. If it's a House bill, it's supposed to go back to the House. And we'll go to at least one other committee, usually ways and means, sometimes rules, various different committees, you know, and eventually if that committee also gives it a favorable report, then it would be able to go to the floor. So for a Senate bill, it's sitting with judiciary. If we get a favorable report out of the judiciary committee, it then goes back through the clerk's office to the Senate Ways and Means Committee. If Senate Ways and Means gives it a favorable report, a thumbs up, then it would be able to come to the floor for a full vote by all of us in the Senate. If we get a yes vote in the Senate, then we send it over to the House. And the House also has to process it through their various House committees and tertiary committees before it comes to the floor. And then it would go to the floor of the House. They also vote, right? 160 members of the House, you need a majority vote in order for the bill to advance. Mm -hmm. If the text of the Senate version and the House version match, then it goes immediately to the governor for her signature. What happens if they didn't match? If the text doesn't match, then the differences have to be resolved. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that can be done pretty quickly. Sometimes if the differences are are notable, um, then we have to have what we call a conference committee. It's a few members of the Senate, a few members of the House. They get together and kind of hash out the differences. And then it goes back for another vote on the compromise bill, Senate and the House together. Once we vote on the compromise language, then it goes to the governor for her consideration and signature. She has a couple of options, right? The one option is to sign it. And upon that signature, the bill becomes law. Hooray. Very exciting. (laughs) Sometimes you have a bill signing ceremony, which can be really terrific. If she decides not to sign it, she can, that's called a veto. And she can do the veto in one of two ways. One is that she specifically says, I'm vetoing this bill. And the other is by waiting out the clock, which is called a pocket veto. I believe it's 10 days for her to take action on a bill before the pocket veto kicks in. Mm-hmm. The legislature can override a veto with a two-thirds supermajority vote, right? So you need a simple majority to pass it and send it up to the governor. You need a two-thirds majority to override any gubernatorial veto, which we have done before. Uh, And because it's such a long process, do you have an idea of when it could be passed, of when it will cross the governor's desk? Just based on past experiences, a lot of things move toward the tail end of the legislative cycle. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right Again, it's a two-year cycle. Our formal sessions end in July of the even-numbered year. Mm -hmm. Right. So July 2024 for this term, July 31st. I don't know what day of the week that is, but um, it's always a very long night. (laughs) Imagine kind of just pack a bag and sort of plan to sleep when you can. It's also a very exciting time. I would hope that a bill like this, we'd be able to move a little bit sooner in the session. You know, it's it's a really important bill, but in terms of language and, you know, statutory text, it's 
rather short. So, you know, it's big in importance, but small in terms of actual number of words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so hopefully we'll be able to move it through a little bit sooner. And so if and when this bill is enacted and made into law, how does the process go for handling complaints or lawsuits with this bill? So if there is discrimination in the workplace, how does that kind of go about being enacted? Yeah, same way as any other discrimination case. The instances of discrimination usually go to the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination first. They would be the the body of initial jurisdiction. They take a look, they issue a ruling, and then there are various rights of appeal from there. Okay, wonderful. Well, I do agree that this is a really important bill, and I'm very excited that it is being processed, and hopefully we get all the yeses straight through to the end. Yeah, let's do all the yeses. That sounds terrific. It is a really important bill for so many reasons, right? We're seeing evidence of lower salaries, less access to healthcare, all sorts of systemic problems, really significant problems stemming from body size discrimination. It's one of the last remaining legal bastions of discrimination. It's not acceptable and it has really serious repercussions Mm -hmm. for the people who are facing this discrimination. It's not fair. It's not right. And we should end it. I I completely agree. And and to end our podcast is with one last sentence, something to end strong on. It can be whatever you would like. What is the last thing you want our listeners to kind of go with to chew on or to that you want to share? It might be a couple of sentences. I would say, as with any bill, the only way that policy change happens is by all of us working together. So if you're listening to this podcast and you are motivated to get involved, if you think this is an important policy change that we need to enact in Massachusetts, then we need your help. We need you to submit testimony, show up and testify um, either in person or virtual whenever the hearing comes up. You can go to my website, BeccaRauschMA.com to find information about how to track a bill. You can get auto updates as to when the bill gets scheduled for a hearing. Talk to your own personal state senators and representatives and ask them to sign on to this bill as a co-sponsor. There are so many different ways that people, residents of the Commonwealth, can get involved and help to move this legislation forward. My colleague in the House, Rep. Wynn, and I cannot do this alone. We need everybody to come into this work with us, to join us in collaboration and do everything we can to get this bill across the finish line. PH Pod is a podcast brought to you by Boston University School of Public Health and Public Health Post, which informs and inflects the broader conversation on health and social justice. Every day we feature new articles about the state of the population. Join the conversation on social media and subscribe to the PHP Friday Roundup to receive your stories of the week delivered to your inbox by visiting publichealthpost.org. Thank you so much for listening in. Uh, See you guys next time. Thank you.